You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. I think that the, you know, the social sciences uh, sort of ended up by having this stalemate between agency and structure. And so you had to pick a side. And the real interesting questions are the interaction effects between agency and structure. And that's something that, um, you know, um, Don stressed and even, you know, Don had uh, some uh, tussles with his dissertation advisor, uh, you know, uh, Kersner over this issue, Um, because um, I think it's kind of an intriguing question about where you see the universality of economics lying. And uh, so to me, and everything that you're saying, the fact that individuals are going to try to respond the best they can to the circumstances is is the theory, right? At some level, uh, that sounds simple, but, uh, you know, that's a theory. But the manifestation of what those best responses are, are completely context specific. And we end up by missing this. It's kind of like in, you know, in a lot of economics, uh, loose thinking of economics, you know, when you say demand curve slope downward, but you forget to recognize that you still have to then talk about the slope of the demand curve before you can say anything in the applied world about what's going on with things. So um, about the magnitude of effects of, of any of this stuff. I mean, you have the effect, you know, um, but not, I, I, you know, I, 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 I like to summarize Vernon Smith's Nobel uh, lecture, which is on ecological versus constructivist rationality in the following sense that the ecological rationality point says that uh, human beings are omnipresent, are, 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 are constantly rational. The question is, is that the manifestation of the rationality is context specific. Right. Right. So like what it means for them to be rational. So what does it mean for a female entrepreneur in Ghana to actually, you know, uh, behave in the best response policy? You don't know that outside of the details about what the hell she's facing in her situation in Ghana. Finance, uh, you know, legal, uh, cultural, all that stuff like that, you know. Right. And so, you know, that so to me, I think the the Austrians the biggest missed opportunity in the Austrians, uh, and it's not, it goes all the way back a long way. It's back to when they were in Vienna, um, is that uh, their cultural context of doing the science of economics um, would have placed them in the realm of economic sociology as it evolved in the second half of the 20th century in the U S but they were, they just thought that's what you did as economists. So like to them, you know, institutions are always part of economics, whereas to the neoclassical model, uh, you know, you were supposed to have an institutionally antiseptic theory, 
right? I mean, that was the goal. And so, you know, Hayek in that regard, you know, people think when he writes The Road to Serfdom or The Constitutional Liberty, he's left economics. But the reality is he's actually still doing economics. He's just focusing on the institutional framework within which exchange processes take place. It's just that no one else in the in, in you know, the United States was doing that. And so they're like looking at it like a weird thing until Buchanan and then North and all the rest of these guys do it. And so, you know, to me, I think it's just, you know, we, we got we got waylaid in economics because of what we thought theory was. And then we get waylaid in applied economics by what we think empirics is. And we end up by, you know, I, I just reviewed McCloskey's uh, new book, Beyond Positivism, Behavioralism, and, and Neo-Institutionalism in Economics. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she has a great line in there where she says that we need a more rigorous but richer theory and a more, you know, basically historical and true empirical economics as opposed to just, you know, st- tests of statistical significance and what she calls, you know, proof, you know, theorem proof economics, you know, kind of thing. And and I think she's right. And um, but it's a battle, I think, that we're going to have to face. But this is a this is a good segue into my next question, because, again, a lot of this stuff that we're doing, you know, you and I share such so many tacit uh, presuppositions because of our 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 teacher, uh, you know, and, and the framing in which Don you know, put things to us. Um, you know, one of his famous essays, right, is uh, between, uh, you know, uh, formalism and historicism, right? I mean, he's, you know, he's, he's trying to find that, that ground. Um, so let me talk about Don as, as a liberal, though. Uh, and uh, so in, in Don's uh, National Economic Planning, What is Left? Uh, chapter seven of that book is, is the closest thing that we have to his kind of manifesto about what a liberal society would be. He, you know, um, I did an interview recently about Don and uh, the question was put to me is why is Don not as well known as this like is the, say- This is the essay or this is the interview you did with Aaron Ross Powell? No, it, it, this is a more recent one that I did with Juliet Selgren. Okay. Um, who I, the great antidote, uh, it's the Adam Smith works project over at Liberty fund. Mm-hmm. And she wanted to do one on Don Lavoy. And so she interviewed me and she asked me this question and I said, look, the sad truth is Don died young, you know? And, and, and so that's just the sad reality of things is he just died at a very young age. And, and so he never got to write his, you know, understanding political economy treatise, which he was working on and things like that. But in this, in the National Economic Planning, what is left, he uses the term like uh, interchangeably libertarianism and radical liberalism. And, uh, you know, why do you think that so much of libertarian thinking seems to have lost its bearings? And so we get a kind of weird illiberal libertarianism so that now we must... Uh, in fact, as you point out in your essay, we have to reclaim the name, you know, liberalism, but we also have to insist that liberalism is liberal. <laughs> like, yeah. right? Like, remember, folks, liberalism is liberal. <laughs> we treat one another as one and I dignified equals, right? Uh, there's right. no hierarchies. There's, you know, the whole thing. I mean, it, it's just, a, it, 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 it's always amazing to me that uh, people somehow think of 
you know, liberalism or libertarianism. And then the next thing they, they see is it's connected to the rise of oligarchs and monopoly, you know, privileges and stuff like that, which is, you know, as Lavoie pointed out in that, in that uh, book going all the way back to the levelers, all the way mm-hmm. through the history of liberalism is one of small, constant struggles to defeat the power of the privileged to uh, have hierarchies, to, you know, to overcome things. And so um, as you're thinking about Don's project and now your four corners of liberalism, you know, where did, it, where did the, 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 the libertarian project go wrong so that now we have to do this reclaiming of the soul of our project um, you know, I, I don't know if that, that question makes sense, but yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know if I have the answer, uh, on the libertarian movement as a, as a whole, uh, because there's a lot to unpack there. There's a lot to, un, you know, like, like, let's start with the fact that, that many people who claim the label are anything but liberals, right. In any form, right. Um, uh, in any form. So, um, just just calling BS where uh, we need to on people who claim that mantle of whether it's if they're in favor of any kind of freedom based um, ideological movement, we need just just to call BS on it if, if, if that's not what they're about. Um, and then there's and then there's, um, I think, another facet of this, which is um, something we were chatting about before, you know, we started to hit the record button is, you know, those intellectual um, proponents of a free society, why haven't they been more uh, persuasive um, uh, across the board? I think that's, you know, that's something that I've thought about a lot more because that's in the intellectual space um, rather than the sort of like, you know, activism or or, uh, politics space. Um, But I think it has something to do with this. And it does come back to Don, to Don's vision. And it also, and, and, if, and if you'll indulge me a little bit, I'd like to go back to the four corners on this, on this piece. Um, because I think that with each of the four corners, there's a narrow um, uh, sort of, you know, necessary piece of, uh, or, or view, a necessary view. And then there's a more expansive view um, of each of the four corners. So for example, political liberalism um, has a sort of like what, at its core, is it, it's, you know, it's, it would be something like a commitment to limited government where its job is to protect our individual liberty, the rights that we have as individuals. Um, I have no quarrel with that starting point because that is a necessary piece of the liberal project. Um, And what I'm about to say isn't to quarrel with it at all. It's just to suggest that that is the sort of minimalist necessary piece of the political liberalism piece of the project. But it's so much more than that, right? And in, in this is the more expansive view. It's, you know, we want a limited government, not as just an end in and, in and of itself, right? We want to limit the government so that we have maximal freedom of for example, freedom of association, right? We we get Tocquevillian art of association because the 
in part because the state is constrained from creeping in too ferociously into these other dimensions of our lives. It gives it gives the rest of our civic life some space, some some oxygen, so it can breathe and thrive and actually do work. Because that's how civil society grows and gets more robust. It actually has to do work. And if and if government encroaches so much, even if it's well-meaning in its encroachment, it it snuffs out that um, that um, that space where civil society can thrive. I think there's another another version of this over on the economic liberalism corner, which is that you know the sort of like necessary um, necessary but limited view is is one of just sort of like economic freedom, full stop. Um, again, we have to have a, a commitment to um, the sort of mechanisms that allow for experimentation and, and, um, um, and innovation and, uh, and, and the free exchange, the voluntary exchange of goods and services. We need that, that, that sort of necessary piece of it. But the more expansive view that builds on that, where we can get to, is an awe-inspiring system of human connection and cooperation, right? You know, going back to my days as, you know, thinking about women in the developing world, what struck me with the sort of boots on the, boots on the ground approach that, that um, I've always favored um, in terms of my empirical research is that seeing up close how freaking hard women work in, in, in poor societies. Um, you know, I kind of always fancied myself as someone who has a strong work ethic. And I look at what these women do on a daily basis, day after day after day. And it's like, whatever I could, you know, put up against that in terms of comparing my work ethic to theirs, you know, no freaking contest, no contest, right? What's the, what's the difference though? Why am I, why am I so benefited? It's not because I'm smarter. It's not because I work harder. You know, neither of those two things is true. It's because I've got access to the extended order. And so the most emancipating thing we could do is, is find ways to extend access to this great system of human connection and cooperation. Like that's what economic, you know, so there's a very narrow view of economic freedom, but there's this more maximal or expansive view of economic freedom as well. And, you know, it's like you could do the same thing with cultural liberalism. You know, we, we do need that, that core starting point of toleration. Like we got to start, you know, toleration is a big piece of it. Yeah. Have you, have you ever seen the, uh, Steve, Steve Horowitz, our, our dear friend who, you know, passed away, he, he loved to point out this video by Hans Riesling on the washing machine. Yeah. So many of us yeah. know the Hans Riesling, the 200 countries over 200 years in four minutes. Um, but he also did one on the washing machine and, and what, what that delivered in terms of, uh, you know, amazing time saving and, and productivity increases for women, you know, around the world with all of this. But I have a, I have a hypothesis. And because what comes out of the what comes out of the washing machine are books. 
yeah. that she can read and she can read to her children. Right. And, you know, I, must, I, I, I love the, the, the puppetry aspect of that piece. It's so just I, I have a hypothesis, which is that in the four corners that the economic liberal component is the most counterintuitive. Uh, where and therefore those who are um, somehow get linked in to understanding through the economic way of thinking that corner, they sometimes use economics as a bludgeon, as you mentioned before, against what they think are these um, encroachments by people that really should be their allies but don't understand the economic corner, right? And it, it, it produced, I think, among people what I call uh, Rosalino Candela and I have a piece trying to respond to Sam Friedman's uh, illiberal libertarianism piece. We have a piece called Liberal Libertarianism. And uh, in that, we describe what we call litmus test libertarianism, which is when uh, young people, especially young men, uh, get... Uh, you know, first learn economic way of thinking, uh, you know, the scales fall from their eyes, you know, they, you know, they have this road to Damascus kind of uh, idea and they, they want to share the good news with everyone. Um, but the sharing of the good news isn't an inviting, it's actually an, an indicting. It's like, how can you believe such silly things that, you know, economic, you know, trade isn't producing wealth or whatever. And so what they hold is they take a, the most obnoxious position possible with your minimum necessary condition and then hold that up. And if you walk away from it by saying, you know, that's not the way I would put things or, you know, that's really, you know, you really shouldn't like, you know, make that argument or whatever. They think, ah, so you must not be willing to bite the bullet and be a real libertarian, you know, kind of thing. And this is like affected our cultural and our intellectual movement. Uh, you know, it's kind of, you know, our, again, one of our mutual teachers, uh, you know, Bob Tullison uh, used to say all the time to me, joking around, he'd say, uh, uh, we don't believe in homo economicus, Pete, who will, right? So, so and, 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 you know, so the, the subtlety gets drained and it's just this blunt instrument kind of idea. Um, and, uh, and, 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 you know, Don was always trying to get us to think about the, you know, subtleties involved um, and, and, and whatnot. And, and, um, and so, you know, I, I appreciate, you know, that this is one of the things like I appreciate in Jim Buchanan, uh, who's a, a more subtle thinker than Gordon Tullock, right? Gordon Tullock's more blunt instrument thinker, right? Or Kenneth Boulding, who, you know, uh, is a more subtle thinker than a blunt instrument type person. And um, and you could say that about Hayek, that is more subtle than a blunt instrument kind of uh, reasoning. And so I think that that might be necessary as an attitude issue, which is in the openness, humility, and optimism, right? You know, kind of idea. Yes, yeah. So, so if you're an economic liberal, um, you're very likely to have a kind of default optimism in the face of economic disruption and change, because we understand that even if I even if I don't know and certainly can't name what the solution to the um, you know present 
moment will be uh, that I know something about the way that um, uh, markets marshal creative forces and uh, solutions bubble up. This is the sort of uh, Julian Simon point, point about the ultimate resource, right? So to me, it is a fairly simple matter of, of flipping that to, you know, to, to cultural liberalism as well, that there is, um, uh, and, and that, that uh, puzzles me as to why, um, say, social conservatives are so frightened of cultural liberalism and so, um, and, you know, just want to, you know, kind of push the brake, put the brakes on, who would otherwise want to limit government power to use government power to, to put the brakes on cultural um, experimentation and evolution. It seems to me that there, that there's not enough um, uh, faith in the things that they say they, you know, want to preserve and care and care about deeply. So family being one of them. And it, you know, it's like, I, I'm super excited about um, this, uh, sort of experimental language and practice around, you'll hear it popping up um, uh, now saying, my chosen family was there for me. In this, in, this in this tumultuous time, my chosen family really came through for me. And, you know, what, what that's standing in for is I was somehow a disappointment to my traditional family, um, uh, maybe because of the partner I uh, choose or who I fell in love with. Uh, and my chosen family uh, was there, and th and that was as real a family as uh, as what was supposed to be, you know, the 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 family structure and and what it could deliver to me. It didn't deliver, and this did, right? Um, and and to me, I think that and and then we're seeing legal innovations that allow for enduring, um, you know, bonds. Uh, to that are so so that there is this is not just um, you know ephemeral uh, and and not just at the level of say a friendship that could build or die off but you know we're going to commit to each other through some form of legal contract that the evolution in in um, law around this kind of arrangement I don't know if it's going to work but what's interesting is that. People are trying to um, hold on to something that is central to what they consider to be family, and so I would claim that if I were if I were a social conservative, I would claim that as a victory, and I would want to support those if 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 family structure is the thing that binds society together, and that's where I'm putting all my you know uh, chits on the table for. What I ought to be in favor of is is ways in which families can uh, be intact and have a kind of resilience built into the system. I um, one of the things that I I really um, so you know reading one thing that is interesting is take your four your four you know uh, corners and then read back classic writings in liberalism. So for example, think back to Hayek's what he's trying to do in the constitution of liberty, because the, the chapter on the creative powers of free civilization 
right, is, is, is right along your lines. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's not just about the economics of it. It's about the intellectual ideas about it. Read back into, you know, McCloskey's, you know, trilogy, right? And what she's identifying is, is not only, it's your package point, right? Is that not only are you going to have these great innovations of tinkering of technologies, but you're going to have art, you know, uh, music, uh, literature that is just, you know, comes from this kind of idea. And, uh, and so I, I think it's really important to understand not only that, that chapter in Hayek about the creative powers, but then also reread his essay, Why I'm Not a Conservative, in light of what you're saying. Because yeah. the reason why he is not a conservative is because the conservatives are, in fact, blocking off the adaptation to change and mm-hmm. the need to not only engage in constant adaptations to change, but prepare ourselves for readaptations to changing mm-hmm. circumstances that are involved. And that that's what living a, um, you know, a, 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 a life is, is constituted of, right, is, is actually, yeah. you know, uh, bobbing and weaving, as oh, they would say. Can I throw something out to you? Yeah. All right. So like I've been working on this, uh, you know, kind of based on the sort of four, four corners idea, I've been working on um, unpacking the, what it would mean to what, what, uh, what are the elements of a liberal sensibility? Um, and, and I, starting with, uh, you know, if you're a liberal, the first thing you'll say is that, you know, this is not a project. The liberal project is not about imposing any end state of the good, right? You know, this is, that's, that is the liberal political um, piece of the project is to say government should not be in the business of telling us what is the good and enforcing it, right? That, that, that it doesn't know enough. And it's, uh, and, and it, as soon as it, supposes that it does and it's imposing up, up upon us our, our in our uh, political liberties are destroyed so um, with that as the you know baseline um, I think that there is a there and this goes back to sort of like you know where did we take wrong turns you know you've written about you know we took a wrong turn by you know tying ourselves you know um, you know, market principles, tying market principles to neoclassical understandings of homo economicus, right? Like, you know, that took a wrong turn. Um, maybe there's a wrong turn here as well in that if if we stop at the point where we say, look, there is no liberal end state or imposed end telos of the liberal order that government is going to orchestrate. We're all in agreement. If we're liberals, we're all in agreement around that. But as liberals, then our next step is to say, right, it's not the government's purview to tell us what the good is. It's ours. It's ours. And and I and I think that as intellectual liberals, we're somewhat reticent to talk about liberal virtues. We're reticent to talk about liberal sensibilities, you know, default postures um, that that lean towards the lean towards and reinforce the norms of liberal society, even though no one's imposing them, or no, no one's advocating that they be imposed. But 
I really think this is part of the problem that we're in. We have a tremendous degradation of uh, or, or threats to the political liberal order, in part because we had political leaders who, without apology, uh, transgressed against liberal norms. And they, and, they, and they bore no responsibility or no accountability for violating liberal norms. Uh, that's a real problem, right? And so as, you know, what are the, when I think about the liberal sensibility, why it matters is that it's, if, if I do think that most of us, most of us in society are more or less advocates of some version of the liberal democratic work. Um, uh, we may or may not have really principled understandings of, you know, economic principles or, right, you know, all that being said, most people want the benefits of a market market-based society in a liberal democratic order. But we're not pulling our weight if we're allowing people to get away with this kind of systematic um, corrosion of liberal no- norms. And so I think that there's value in naming what the liberal norms are, not as a project of imposing our will, but as a project that says, as members of civil society, scholars need to be in this game. I, um, I think that's very wise. Um, I'm very mindful of, of the time. And I have one last question, which relates to a Harper Magazine uh, symposium that's running this February. Um, it just was released uh, earlier this week, but it's a, a roundtable conversation on the topic um, is liberalism worth saving? Um, and it involves a conversation between Patrick Deneen, uh, Frank Fukuyama, uh, Deirdre McCloskey, and Cornell West. And, um, you know, it, it's McCloskey stands out uh, very much in this conversation um, because of her economic liberalism. Um, Deneen is rejecting all four of the, uh, in many ways, um, yeah. Uh, because Deneen wants to have a telos, right? Uh, wants to have an overarching telos, a, a, a purpose, a, a truth that somehow mm-hmm. is in our political culture or whatever. Um, but Cornell West and Frank Fukuyama are interesting characters um, because they're 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 embracing, in some sense, these tensions that you're that you're talking about, um, and they become frustrated aspects with uh, their, uh, you know, earlier positions on things. But at the end of the day, you know, they joined Deneen in being very pessimistic about the liberal project, whereas McCloskey, yourself, our group in general or whatever, is more optimistic and believe in the possibility of a better, a better world, um, you know, through freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you negotiate the intellectual space that you're occupying with this kind of broad conversation. I mean, at, at one level, it's an amazingly welcome thing that, you know, on Harper's magazine, they're debating the very thing that you are working on and everything. I mean, how many people are reading that? It, it, it's like a huge space, right? Um, and, and whatnot. But on another level, it's, it seems strange that people are writing the obituary of this liberal project. Um, so just to finish up, I mean, how do you, how are you envisioning your engagements 
in this broader sense and, and the success or frustrations you've had in trying to communicate your four corners idea in this intellectual space? Yeah, I, I think um, it's it's very similar to the um, the sense that I had as a, you know just starting out as an economist that 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 you kind of had to have a conversation on two fronts all the time. Um, so you're so, sharpening those elbows. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and you know may, maybe I need to change the metaphor. Maybe it's you know just like. Bigger hugs, you know, uh, uh, I don't know. Um, uh, but it goes back to uh, Don as the um, as the best teacher on on any of this, right? And and to your point about as freaked out and genuinely concerned I am about, I'm actually very concerned about the future of the liberal project, not because so much that there are, um, you know, intellectuals who are, um, you know, kind of chipping away at it, um, though that needs a response and, and Deirdre's work is, is so important in that space, um, but more about things like the forgetting, the mass, massive forgetting, right? So like one of the things that was helpful in the Cold War times is that you had a kind of um, a thing that you could point to, if you could, if you could point to, that's what you get in a Soviet style economy. If government is, it, it sees its role as, uh, engineering and coordinating, uh, the economy, that's the outcome. So make, so making the connections between political freedom and economic freedom, you could, you could point to some very real, um, examples. You can point to real examples today too, but it wasn't as much in the in the zeitgeist of um, you know the public, and and so that had value in the sense of you could kind of keep people even if they were resistant to um, you know how far you might want to go or I might want to go with economic liberalism. Um, that there was that there was still a kind of everybody was still on team liberalism. Even if they wouldn't put it that way, we sort of assumed that the direction, that every, that the, you know, typical Soviet citizen, what they wanted most was the freedoms we had in the United States as imperfectly um, exercised as that, um, that was even at the time, right? Um, there was an assumption that more liberality was the direction that the world wanted to go. There was the assumption that um, that that just respectable, polite society was one in which we wanted greater, um, expansive civil liberties um, across the board, and where they where they were, um, you know, where there was um, power inappropriately asserted, you know, it didn't matter whether you were, you know, which party you voted for, you would call that out kind of thing. And that, and that has for a variety of reasons that, that and in part because of the, the sort of the quote unquote moment of the end of history, the 1989 moment, well, it's like, well, we won the so-called battle of ideas. We, we could then, you know, kind of relax back and stop having to argue 
in the mode of liberal scholars anymore and in the mode of liberal public intellectuals or um, policymakers or or um, political actors, you didn't have to nod to that baseline anymore. And that, and that I think has um, made us forget in some very profound ways that we are, in fact, mostly, most of us are liberals, right? That if we think about our fellow citizens, if you go down, you know, sort of issue by issue, right? Um, I like the work that Todd Rose is doing on, at Harvard um, uh, around, um, you know, the, the, the massive degree of agreement on some core basic liberal principles across society. And yet we have forgotten the package that brought us those good things. We've lost the language that brought us those good things. We've lost the, um, the sort of intellectual arguments that allow us to connect dots that are not obvious that lead to liberal principles. We've lost the default liberal impulses that lead to, you know, default to optimism in the face of challenge and, and these sorts of things. So that, that makes me very, very concerned. At the same time, I am also incredibly optimistic. For one, like you say, there is intellectual debate around liberalism. And so perhaps the forgetting can, can be reversed, right? So that's valuable. And the other is I, I look at the way in which people um, respond with what I would describe as basically liberal impulses in the face of Ill- illiberalism. You know, it's a news story and people are, you know, just shocked, you know, when they hear of the, um, uh, the, the protests and the reasons for the protest in Iran, the, um, the annihilation of, of uh, education for girls and women in Afghanistan. We react in a way, I think the general public reacts in a way that, that betrays in a very good way their, their knee-jerk liberal principles, right? If they learn about how the Uyghurs are being treated uh, in China or um, what's happening with, with press freedoms in Hong Kong, their knee-jerk reaction is a liberal reaction. And that's what gives me hope. And we have a community of scholars who see what's behind that hope, who see the intellectual tradition that is the wellspring of that, of that impulse, the um, willingness and ability to apply those principles to really complex and novel challenges when they don't know what the answer is, right? You know, the pandemic is a great example of of, of things that were offered up. Uh, the post-George Floyd moment, another example of things, of challenges that are offered up where, you know, that is a classic liberal challenge. We need a state that is strong enough to keep us from predating against each other but we also need to figure out how we solve the problem, the Madisonian problem, that the state doesn't predate against us, right? That's a classic liberal challenge. And it's, and it's a challenge because there isn't an easy answer to it. And that's why we need the brightest minds 
diving in deep to the liberal project. And so that's, again, because it's a thing again to worry about, to think about, that also gives me hope. Well, Emily, that's a fantastic note to end on. Um, I greatly appreciate you taking the time. Um, And uh, I have to say, uh, you know, the work that you're doing is just fantastic. So keep it up. And uh, I hope that we can have this, this, uh, you know, conversation again in an another, you know, few months and we can see how we're both uh, trying to uh, push the frontiers out because we have hope uh, that uh, we can, uh, as Steve always used to say, you know, repair a broken world. So Indeed. Indeed. Thank you for this opportunity, Pete. It's always great to see you. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.